Good evening. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. Paul's, what we call Paul's first letter to Corinth. Text to which we'll be turning our attention is chapter 1, focusing on verse 5. We began our study of 1 Corinthians a few weeks ago. This wonderful and profound letter that Paul wrote to the church of God in Corinth. And tonight we will see his emphasis on a sweet theme. And that is the riches of God and the poverty of man. The riches of God and the poverty of man. Paul is writing in this short section of a verse a portion of thanksgiving and encouragement which is common in most of his letters. And in our verse tonight, he mentions the riches of God, which is a topic that he mentions in several of his other letters. But unlike the other letters, he mentions explicitly being enriched in Christ. The Corinthian letters are the only places where Paul uses this explicit language. And it is our privilege to meditate on that profound truth tonight, that we have been enriched in Christ. We have been made rich in Christ. So let's begin by reading 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 9. Hear the word of our Lord. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thus ends the reading of God's perfect and holy word. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would feed us from your word that you would show us more of Christ, that you would help us to remember and to know even more deeply the riches that are to be found in Him and the poverty that we have apart from Him. Help us to see again that this world can never satisfy and that only your riches are the true riches that neither moth nor rust can destroy and that thieves cannot break in and steal. Feed us tonight, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Looking back again at verse 5, notice how Paul says that in every way you were enriched in Him. That's our point of meditation tonight. And notice first the action itself. It is God who does the enriching. It is God who does the enriching. You were enriched or you were made rich, we could translate it. It is a passive action on behalf of the Corinthians. Their enrichment was not a result of their effort, not a result of their pedigree, not a result of their doctrinal knowledge or their moral uprightness. They didn't do it, which is exactly consistent with what Paul is doing in this entire paragraph. He is steadily and deliberately shifting the focus away from the Corinthians back on God. Look back at verse one of this chapter. God is the one who called Paul to be an apostle. Verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth. Verse 3, grace to you and peace from God. Verse 4, I give thanks to God because of the grace of God that was given to you. 
The Corinthians had all sorts of problems, many of which stem from a man-centered view of the world and of their salvation. They considered themselves rich in terms of their spiritual gifts. They flaunted them. They emphasized their efforts and their wisdom and their discernment and their rhetorical flair, their speaking gifts, their eloquence, their gifts of utterance. And in typical Pauline fashion, he cuts right to the heart of the matter by reminding them that their riches have been given to them. Whatever they have is a gift. You didn't earn this. None of you were of noble birth, Paul will later say. None of you were rich. None of you had anything to contribute to the riches that God had given to you in Jesus Christ. In fact, as Paul will make clear later, the message of the cross is a message that makes one poor in the eyes of the world. Man is to be made a fool if he is to preach the message of Jesus Christ crucified. Paul mentions something of this in 2 Corinthians 6.10 when he says that he's treated as poor and yet makes many rich. Doesn't mean he's walking around passing out cash, making people rich. He's viewed by the world as having nothing to contribute, nothing of value, no riches in and of himself, and yet by the proclamation of a glorious gospel about the God of all riches, Paul is making many rich when they receive the gospel. That's the glorious and upside-down logic of God's gospel. In coming to Christ, you have to admit that you have nothing to contribute, recognize your own spiritual poverty, and then by doing so, you become the beneficiary of untold spiritual riches. You must go down to be brought up. You must be made low to be elevated. You must become last if you are to become first. The enrichment that the Corinthians received was utterly foreign to them, alien to them. It came from outside of themselves. And Paul is intentional here in the introduction of this letter to remind them of that. They needed to be reminded of first principles, foundational truths. And he does this throughout his letter. We'll notice it as we go along. He goes back to the basics. If there's a problem that arises, we have to consider the foundational truths to know what to be true. You have a problem with divisions and tribalism. Well, Paul says what? Is Christ divided? Were you baptized into Paul? Were you baptized into Apollos? No, you were baptized into Christ, who is wholly undivided. He is one. And therefore, your divisions are at root a fundamental misunderstanding of your salvation and your union to Christ. See a problem? Go back to fundamental principles. Have a problem with sexual immorality, he addresses later. Paul says, don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? That your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? He corrects these ethical problems by reminding them of fundamental truths, specifically truths related to their union to Christ. And here is the fundamental principle he's highlighting here in our enrichment, our being made rich, our having access to the divine riches, our is fundamentally a passive action. It's a work of God on our behalf. He is the one who has enriched us. He is the one who has saved us. He's done it out of His sovereign will and free accord. We've not done it because we were special. No, we were poor. We were granted grace. We had nothing to contribute. And that's the entire story of salvation in Scripture. Man's poverty, man's inability, man's impotence, impotence to save himself, Contrasted and overruled by God's initiative-taking love. His actions to save. Adam was naked and ashamed in the garden when he sinned. God acted and covered his nakedness. 
Noah was surrounded by wickedness and impending judgment, but God acted and shut him up in the ark. Abraham had no heir and was grieved, but God acted and opened Sarah's womb. Israel was enslaved in Egypt and had no means of rest or rescue, but God delivered them from Pharaoh by his mighty arm. David was faced with a mighty giant, but God guided the rock that dropped the Philistine blasphemer. We could go on and on. We could even look at Paul. Paul was a a persecutor of the church, and yet God blinded him on the road to Damascus. And God used his physical blindness, his poverty, if you will, to give him the gift of sight. It was through his lack of physical sight that he began to see the riches of divine grace for the first time. And that's the story for all of us. If we believe we have that faith because God's divine actions in our heart was there first. It's all of grace from start to finish. It's not because of our loveliness or our eloquence or because we're in the right church or because we know the right doctrine, we've said the right catechisms. See, we were, we were in Egypt. We were slaves in our unbelief. Not only that, we were happy in our unbelief. The Bible says that we were enemies of God, at enmity with Him. We didn't want to be saved. We were in Egypt and we loved Pharaoh. How could I possibly leave Pharaoh? I love him so much. Our own slave driver, the one that's pushing us to death, that's driving us to the grave, but I have no interest in leaving him. Man does not seek after God. It's not as if a bunch of us got together in our unbelief and we realized, you know what, I really... I really have something missing. I really am in spiritual poverty. So let's set up a committee to decide what we need to do next so that we can get right with God. That doesn't happen. We're by birth pointed away from God. We love the darkness. We love our sin. We love our poverty. And we hate divine riches. We hate the light of divine riches. But praise be to God that the father of All riches has shown his kindness to us. He didn't leave us in our darkness and in our poverty. He sent a savior. He sent a redeemer. And he didn't send us a mere Moses. He didn't save us from one evening of Passover danger. He didn't just part the Red Sea for us. He has sent the true and greater Moses who goes before us, who proclaims God's law to us, who disarms the ruler of this age, who liberates us from slavery and bondages to sin freeing us for a journey to a greater country. And He doesn't just save us from a single Passover evening. He saves us from an eternity under judgment and death. And He does this not merely by sacrificing a valuable spotless lamb. He sends His own Son to be our forever Passover lamb, whose blood covers us like the lamb's blood on the posts and lentils, and whose purification makes us clean, not merely for a night of judgment, but for all of eternity. And God doesn't just part the Red Sea so that we can walk through the waters of judgment once. He sends us His Son to go through the place of judgment, to go through the grave itself so that the sting of the grave cannot reach us and the pain of death cannot keep us. We've been made united to His Son who has already beaten death and in our union to Christ, nothing can stop us, not even the grave. We've been raised with Him and seated in the heavenly places, Paul says, speaking of our future resurrection with such confidence and assurance that he speaks of it in the past tense. You've been raised with Christ, seated in the heavenly places. All of this from start to finish is a work of God. It's 
It's divine action, divine initiative. We're beneficiaries of divine enrichment and blessing to such a scale and to such a degree that it ought to humble us. We ought to be on our knees constantly praising God for this bestowal of divine grace. But do we often act this way? No, we act like the Corinthians. You know, we're, the, we're the righteous ones. We're the ones that have it all together. We're the, the church that's got it all going on. We're the pretty good people. We're doing all right. Unlike those people over there that sin differently than I do. They are the ones that need grace. Those are the ones that need salvation. I've pretty much got it under control. I mean, I've got a bad day every now and then, but I'm generally doing okay. If they would do it like I do it, if they would think like I think, if they would read the Bible like I read the Bible, then they would get their act together. We think we're the rich ones and we have riches to offer other people. Riches inherent to ourselves. When in fact we are the ones with nothing. We're the ones with spiritual poverty. We're the ones still in need of grace. Apart from God's constant and ongoing work of grace in our lives, we drift back into poverty. Salvation is a gift of divine blessing, divine initiative, divine grace from start to finish. And it is God who does the enriching. Second, not only do we need to remember that God does the action, we need to remember who it is that does this enriching. The identity of the enricher. The identity of the enricher. We should know who it is that's bestowing our riches. Who is it that is our benefactor? And the answer is the sovereign God of all things. The God who is described in multiple places in Scripture as having untold riches. Unspeakable riches. Paul speaks of God's riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience in Romans 2.4. The riches of His kindness, which is a manifestation of His essential goodness towards us. God is good in and of Himself. He's good even before He created anything. And that goodness inclines Him to manifest His goodness in a particular way to particular people. And we receive that goodness towards us as kindness. We deserve just judgment, but God is rich in His kindness to show us mercy and favor. Similarly, Paul speaks of the riches of his forbearance. That is the riches of God being long-suffering. He's willing to withstand being treated sinfully for a long time. God's forbearance is seen in each one of our lives from the fact that He didn't strike us down because of our sin. We came from the womb bearing the guilt of sin, bearing the curse. We were inclined towards selfishness and hatred. We didn't get what we wanted and so we screamed and we fought and we demanded and we fussed. We sinned. And yet God in His forbearance chose not to strike us with judgment. But we'd be worthy to note that this forbearance, the riches of His forbearance, will not last forever. If you're not united to God by faith in Jesus Christ, He will not forbear you for long. One day you will be called to account. You will be brought before Him in divine judgment and the riches of divine justice will be demonstrated upon you. Unless you repent of your sins and believe in Jesus. Do not presume upon the riches of His kindness and forbearance. 
Do not delay another day. His grace has been shown to you this very night by letting you hear again the gospel of grace so that you can respond. Don't presume upon his patience and ignore his call. Your time will come. Listen again to this message. The message of divine enrichment. Paul lays it out in 2 Corinthians 8, 9 when he says, Though Christ was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. You see that sweet exchange? He had everything and he gave it all up and became nothing, so that by becoming nothing you might inherit all things in him. What man would do that? No man would, that's the answer. Only a good God would do that, and that's what Christ is, the God-man, fully divine, sharing in the goodness of the divine nature of the Father, and yet taking on the fullness of human nature. The God-man came and lived a life of poverty. He was born in a cattle stall. He was laid in a manger. He was born not to a royal family, but to meager lineage. He was born not in a palace, Raised by a woodworker. He was trained not in the finest schools, but as a simple Hebrew boy. He had everything and yet became nothing to the eyes of the world that by his becoming nothing, you might gain everything. And not only that, his willingness to become poor is seen in how he was treated. He was mocked. He was ridiculed. He was spat upon and stripped. He was whipped and crowned, not with gold, but with thorns. He was elevated. Not like a statue in honor, but like a criminal on a cross. His poverty was further displayed in his burial. He was laid to rest not in a mausoleum like a king. Not in a pyramid like Pharaoh. But in a grave that he didn't even own. But God received the poverty of his son and accepted it as the faithful service that it was and rewarded him with a name above all names, and with glory eternal, with the right to become heir to the kingdom and king of an eternal throne. Christ's poverty has earned him the riches of a full inheritance, and those riches can be yours if you would but trust in him. His riches become yours. His inheritance become yours. His eternal status becomes yours. His father becomes your father, all by trusting in him and not in your own riches, not in your own strength, not in your own merits and influence and ability come to that Jesus again each of us and taste of the goodness of divine riches and remind yourself of the identity of the one that is the enricher and have your heart made full again by his divine grace third we've seen that God does the enriching and we've looked at the identity of the enricher now let's look at the scope of the enrichment the scope of the enrichment. Paul says in verse 5 that in every way you were enriched. In every way. What does that mean? Well, it means, as has been hinted already, that every part of your life is evidencing divine enrichment. You've been made rich in God and the proof of that is evident in every area of your life whether or not we take time to notice. You say, but how is that possible? I've been dealt a life of sickness. How is that evidence of divine enrichment? Well, the Bible teaches us that nothing is given to us, whether pleasant or unpleasant, apart from God's divine plan and purpose to work for our good. Your sovereign and good father has determined that the best thing for you 
is to suffer right now in the body. And that is a grace to you. A daily reminder for you not to rely on your flesh and to cast yourself wholly and completely upon your good Father for strength. Further, you've been given a daily reminder that your hope should lie in a new, resurrected, pain-free body in the new heavens and the new earth. And if you didn't have this daily battle with sickness or with pain, you might be tempted to rely on your own strength and not trust in God. And so God has given to you the need to work against your own sinful inclinations, to prepare your heart for glory and strengthen your trust in Him. You've been richly blessed with what the all-wise and all-good God knows to be the best thing you need for your soul. He's working for your good, even now. Even through sickness. Well, you say, what, but what about, what about money? I'm working paycheck to paycheck. How am I enriched in Christ? I'd say with Paul and the rest of Scripture that your material status... Your material poverty is what God has ordained to be your station at the moment and may be exactly what your heart needs to drive itself from the love of the world into the arms of your good God. God is sufficient and His love and salvation is sufficient. And if your material needs are great enough, God has provided for you through the provision of His people in His church. Your brothers and sisters in Christ love you and can share with you the things that you need. The riches of God lavished upon us does not mean that we will have all of our material wants met in this life. That's a lie of Satan, and it is a dangerous lie. In fact, material riches are often a source of immense temptation and can destroy a man. The riches that God lavished upon us, the important riches, are the riches that moth and rust cannot destroy. We've been enriched with peace of soul and a cleansing of conscience and money can never buy that. We've been enriched with confidence in our future knowing that God is good and He is our sovereign Father and we don't need to be anxious about what lies ahead. A big bank account can never provide that. We've been enriched with complete fulfillment of the law so that we're righteous in the eyes of God. Actually righteous. No self-help plan can ever give you that. We've been given complete forgiveness in Christ so that nothing from our past could ever come back and condemn us before God. No expensive legal team could ever give you that. We've been adopted into God's very own household such that we've been given complete acceptance. And we're never alone, never orphaned in this world. No club or fraternity could ever give you that comfort. And we've been made into the image of Christ. So that means whatever meaningless and worthless work we do in this world, from changing diapers to praying unseen in a closet, all of that will be done to the glory of God and therefore given eternal significance and importance and will be seen by your heavenly Father and will be rewarded by your good Father in heaven. No customer rewards program can compete with that. We have been enriched by being given everything we need, spiritual riches, salvation, and none of it can be removed from us. Moth and rust can never destroy them. Thieves cannot break in and steal them. Our stumbles cannot even make us drop them. We're assured and we're upheld by God's divine hand, and we will assuredly receive the fullness of these divine riches when we join Him together in paradise. That is the scope of our enrichments. 
It's all things. Fourth, God does the enriching. We've seen the identity of the enricher. We've looked at the scope of the enrichment. Now let's look at the means of our enrichment. The means of our enrichment. Paul says in verse 5 that in every way you were enriched in Him. In Him. What is the way to access divine enrichment? Or, what, or we could say, what is the way of salvation? How can I be saved? What must I be, must I be doing to be made right with God? And the answer is, in Him. The Corinthians really believed they were something. They were special. They had reason to boast in themselves and their works and their gifts. But Paul preempts his later arguments by again focusing on God rather than the Corinthians and their gifts. Remember the giver, Paul is saying. Quit focusing so much on the gifts. Remember the way that you've been made rich. Forget about the riches themselves in one sense. Think about the one who gave them to you. You were enriched in Him, in Christ. He's the one that's done it, not you. He's the one that's fulfilled the law, not you. He's the one that satisfied all righteousness, not you. He's the faithful Son of God, not you. He's the source of all strength in the church, not you. He's the one that's keeping your church together, not you. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the faithful and the true. He's the one deserving all praise. He is the strong one. He is the source. He is the way, the path, the truth, the life. Apart from Him, you can do nothing. Paul is putting the Corinthians in their place, so to speak. Don't have an inflated view of yourself and your contributions. Don't think that you're the hot shot. You're not the reason things are going well. Don't give yourself that much credit. Christ is the reason. Christ has done it. Christ is the glue holding it together. Christ is the one in control. Corinth believed that they were really something, and that was causing their problems. They forgot who they were before Christ, and they were forgetting who they were in Christ. And that's the cause of most of our problems. We forget who we were before Christ, and we forget who we are in Christ. We forget our spiritual poverty and our weakness, our sinful hearts, our pride, our greed, our discontentment, our rage, our bitter tongues. We forget. We forget that we really needed to be saved from death by someone else because we could not do it ourselves. And because we forget that, we boast. We have an inflated view of ourselves. We think we're better than others, that we really don't need it. divine enrichment. I've got it under control. I'm not that bad. And like the Corinthians, when we forget who we were and what we've been given in Christ, all sorts of fleshly behaviors pop up. We slowly begin to tolerate sexual sin. We pridefully treat others as less important than ourselves and therefore worthy of our contempt. We indulge in the flesh. We boast in our strength. We speak and act without love. Praise be to God for His goodness to remind us again of our poverty. We need to be reminded that we are in need of grace. Not that we were in need of grace, though we were, but that we are still in need of His grace. We continue to be, and we will continue to be in need of His grace. We need the grace of divine enabling. We need the grace of divine illumination to read Scripture with any prophet. We need the grace of perseverance to hang on and to last in the Christian life. We need the grace of sanctification to grow in our walk. And to continue putting to death the deeds of the flesh. 
We need the grace of evangelical humiliation or gospel humbling where God shows us again our sins, not so that we will stay there and pout in misery, but so we would again run back to Jesus for forgiveness and cleansing. We need grace. And all of that is found in Him. All of these graces, all of these divine riches can't be found by following a 12-step program. There's not a checklist in any page of your Scripture that tells you what you need to do. You can't memorize enough verses and pray enough prayers and recite enough incantations and not even baptism or attending the Lord's Supper that ultimately does it. These things, these riches are found in Him, in Him alone, in the person of our Christ Jesus. Nothing outside of Christ grants these graces. Nothing outside of Christ can bless with divine riches. Nothing outside of Christ offers complete protection and provision. Nothing. No pope, no king, no president, no pastor, no program. Nothing. It's only in Christ. Only in union with Him by faith that we can have these things. And so don't look to the world to offer you what only Christ can give. Don't look to the world to provide you with freedom from anxiety. Only Christ can give that. Don't look to the world to provide fulfillment and satisfaction and joy. Only Christ can give that riches. The world offers but can never provide. Only Christ can do. Come to Him and trust in Him and think on Him often. Believe in Him. Cherish Him. And these riches will be yours. And they'll be yours in increasing measure. Fifth. We've seen that God is the one who enriches. We've seen the identity of the enricher. We've seen the scope of the enrichment. We've seen the means of the enrichment. Now let's look at the fruit of divine enrichment. The fruit of divine enrichment. I guess we could say a fruit or two fruits. Some of the fruit of divine enrichment. What does Paul specifically say here in verse 5? That you in every way were enriched in Him in all speech and in all knowledge. In all speech and in all knowledge. We could say in all utterance and all understanding if we wanted to. These two words, speech and knowledge, logos and gnosis, are big categories that come up in this book. And what Paul is doing, he's already highlighting things that are points of contention in Corinth. They were proud over their gifts of speech and knowledge, over their teaching ministry, over their rhetorical ability, over their words, over their sermons. They were proud over their knowledge, their gnosis, their doctrinal understanding, their biblical insight. They were proud over these things. The gifts of understanding the gospel and voicing the truth of God. And these are important gifts. These are very important gifts. These are riches that God bestows upon His church. Paul points out in 2 Corinthians 8 that the Corinthians excelled in these two areas. And Paul was thanking God for that. But here he's emphasizing again that these gifts come only from union with God in Christ. Whatever riches they have, whatever spiritual riches, whatever divine favors they have, they have received through Jesus Christ and ought to be occasions for humble thanksgiving rather than proud boasting. I think this is a particular warning to us at Morning View. We rightly pursue doctrinal fidelity and rightly emphasize the priority of proper preaching, which are two examples of these categories, speech and knowledge. 
how easy it is for us at Morningview to have right speech and right knowledge, right preaching and right doctrine, and to have them without love. To be a banging gong and a clashing cymbal to anticipate what Paul says in chapter 13. I know I've seen that temptation in my own heart, and it's not merely a corporate issue, though it certainly is that. We can have this pride of heart, pride of doctrine, pride of knowledge, pride of precision, pride of whatever, and use it as an excuse for us to look down upon others. What a foolish and backward situation. Those who understand the doctrines of grace ought to be the most humble. But it too often doesn't happen that way. Those with gifts of knowledge and speech, of doctrine and sound preaching, ought to be the least proud, the least pugnacious, the least combative, the least judgmental. Consider the example of Jesus Christ. He was the most doctrinally knowledgeable man to ever live and the most capable preacher and teacher ever to live. Did he speak proudly? Did he speak boastfully? Never. He was willing to talk to anyone and to do it with the appropriate gentleness and love. If we understand the truth that's being highlighted by Paul in this text, if we remember the gospel, that we've been saved by divine grace from start to finish, that although we had nothing but poverty, we've been made partakers of the divine inheritance, we will continue to be molded more and more into the image of Christ. And our example will continue to be aligned with the standards set set forth by Christ. And so let us all continue to exercise our spiritual gifts, of course. Especially the gifts of speech and knowledge with proper humility. With a disposition of service and love. And with intentional gratitude for the riches of grace showered upon us in Christ. And so to close this point and and this sermon, I'll go back to an earlier metaphor. Go back to the Hebrews coming out of Egypt by God's mighty arm. What Israelite would be walking on the dry ground going through the Red Sea with walls of water on each side being upheld by God Himself with His nose high in the air boasting in His own strength? What Hebrew would do that? It's absurd. The question for us is why on earth would we think it's any different for us to do that? For us to be proud of heart. Whatever knowledge whatever gifts we have, whatever favor has been shown to us, has been done for us in Christ's work and been given to us by our union with Christ. We have nothing to boast in except Christ and His riches. We had nothing but poverty, but Christ became poor so that through His poverty we might become rich. Praise be to God, for in Him we have been enriched in every way. Let's pray. Our Father and God of all riches, we praise You and thank You for the riches of Your kindness, the riches of Your mercy, the riches of Your patience and forbearance, the riches of Your gifts that You pour out upon Your church through the work of Your Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that we would be humble, that we would be quick to remember it's not because of our strength, but because of Your grace that we stand at all. Ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to close tonight again with the doxology. Please stand.